Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man, the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you may surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Excellent. Good morning, everyone, again. So this is week four of a series in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, looking at the origins of home. And in case you've not been with us, 
let me just briefly summarize where we've got to so far. So week one, in the beginning, God. It all starts with him. And the Bible reveals a God who is love. Before there was a creation, there was the enjoyment of self-giving love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the origins of the universe are found in him, one God in three persons. In week two, we saw that God created everything as an overflow of his love in a pattern of forming and filling, bringing about a good creation to be a good home, as described in the poem of Genesis 1. And then last week we heard that rest is to be at the heart of the home God made for us. Rest is not the destination we strive to reach like some distant retirement, but it's the starting point we're given to live from. And today we're going to begin to look at what it means to be made in the image of God. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the passage that was just beautifully read out by Jean, exploring it from different angles. And we're going to start this morning with looking at the fact that we are made for relationship. Now throughout the creation poem of Genesis chapter 1, we have this pattern of God speaking and things coming into being. His word is powerful to create what it commands. That's important. God's very speaking is a creative act. So there's this repetitive beat to each day of creation, beginning with, and God said, and followed by, and it was so. But on day six, when God comes to create human beings, the phrase he chooses is different to the pattern for every other day. So on day one, God says, let there be light. Day two, let there be an expanse separating waters. Day three, let the earth sprout. Day four, let the lights fill the expanse. Day five, let the waters swarm. And day six begins in similar fashion. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. So the pattern is, let something happen, and it happens. And yet, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, the phrase God speaks out is different. He says, let us make man in our likeness. It's a more personalized tone, let us make man in our likeness. God is attaching something of the very nature of who he is to human beings. And as we saw in week one of the series, the self-revelation of God in the Bible is that God is love. One God in three persons, in self-giving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in saying, let us make man in our image, God was making us fundamentally relational, just as he is at his very core, relational. We are hardwired for relationship and connection, to enjoy what he has always enjoyed, to love as he loves. That's the power of the words, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To be human is to be relational, because God is relational. And we cannot survive without relationship. That's why in prison, solitary confinement is such a severe punishment. It's not good for man to be on his own. We need connection. And actually, this truth is proclaimed to us all right from birth. Here is a photo 
of um, what I'm sure you'll agree is quite possibly the cutest baby you've ever seen. But um, actually, that's me. That's, that's baby Mike. And there are many facts about me which are visible from when I was born. So I had this birthmark on my forehead, two podgy arms, two podgy legs, um, made lots of cute-sounding noises from my mouth, made also some not-so-cute smells from somewhere else. Um, that was me. But to be fair, you were just like that too. We all were. And actually, we all begin life in a real kind of sense of dependence. I mean, I'm so glad that when I was born, I wasn't just put in a room and inspected. You know, people just asking, how did all that tissue come to form such a funny-looking fella? I'm so glad that didn't happen. So glad that I wasn't just pondered at arm's length with food occasionally tossed to me. I wouldn't have survived long at all if that had happened. Neither would you. For all of us, our stories begin with dependence. I needed others to know me, to feed me and to hold me and to talk to me and to invest into me, to love me, to relate to me. Even when it was all one-way traffic, all give on their part and take on mine. You and I would never have learned to talk or walk or laugh if it wasn't for relationship. Human beings are hardwired for it. We're relational to our core in the likeness of God. And so this morning we're going to just look at three relationships. I want us to look at relationship with God, relationship with each other, and very briefly relationship with creation. Firstly, then, relationship with God. Do you know, you were made for deep, personal, life-giving relationship with the three-person God of the Bible. That is the foundational relationship for all others and the one that puts every other relationship in its right orientation. In verse 7 of chapter 2, we read that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That is such a personal and loving image of the activity of God in bringing mankind into being. We're not meant to read that and ask, oh, how does the chemistry of all that work? I mean, dust forming us? What's the, what's the biology behind that? What's the anatomy behind that? How does the physiology come about? We're not meant to do that at all. Rather, we're meant to read that and go, wow, that's amazing. God getting his hands dirty to form us and drawing near to fill us, formed and filled. Here, at the beginning, mankind is formed with the dust of the earth in solidarity with it, but filled with the breath of God's life-giving spirit, like a kiss from heaven. That's our common ancestry. In the beginning, God breathes life into man so he becomes a living being. And Derek Kidner explains in his commentary that the word breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making, and self-giving at that. God gives himself in the beginning to form us and fill us into those who bear his image, capable of the most profound, loving relationship 
And so Kidna goes on to say, even at our making, the pattern God so loved that he gave was visible. That's just what God is like. He is love, so he is giver. And you and I were made for deep, satisfying relationship with the living God who delights to give himself away. His very nature is to communicate his goodness freely to those who have been created in his image. To to enjoy what he has always enjoyed, a life of love. We are made to enjoy God greatly. And so relationship with God is not supposed to feel like drudgery or obligation or task. Quite the opposite. Actually, those things drain us, whereas God fills us with life. He animates. He brings life forth. He makes us awake to beauty and to awe and to wonder. To know him is to know life itself. Now, in a few, about a month's time, we're going to look at why our world is so full of sadness and suffering and disconnection and evil, considering our fall from paradise, paradise lost. But I just want to touch on it a bit here. You see, an ancient lie was sown into the heart of mankind, and you can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. And really the sum of the lie is this that God is withholding something good from us. That's the kind of heart of it. That that God is not truly generous and self-giving. That there is some great God, good, there is some great good that God is unwilling to give. And so it must be taken, or earned, or found elsewhere. And it's a lie that often leads to the belief, therefore, that there's something you must do to elevate yourself towards God and his goodness as if his love is not free and and not satisfying. And we all struggle with the poison of this lie one way or another. Many slip into thinking relationship with God looks like draining tasks and restriction of pleasure. Reading your Bible because you have to. Praying because you ought to. Coming to church now and then to keep up appearances. Doing good deeds to appease your conscience. Um, Struggling with heavy burdens until you sort yourself out and then can come and be with others. Or sneaking hidden pleasures wherever you can find them because you won't find them with God. But that's not the life God has given. That's not the image you were formed in. That's religion. You know that's religion because religion is about our doing something to climb up towards God, finding within ourselves life and goodness. But we're all prone to this one way or another. We're all prone to this. Prone to moving away from relationship towards religion. Fleming Rutledge observes that the universal human tendency is that we back away from the grace of God no sooner than it seizes us. We accept it and then refuse it, and accept it and then refuse it, again and again and again, tending to retreat back into ourselves. For me, when this happens, 
it looks like constant self-analysis. For me, my tendency is to um, think that my relationship with God is as good as my current emotional state or psychological certainty. And so, better work that up and achieve certain levels. That's religion. That is the emphasis of climbing up to God with our works, whether those be internal or external. That drains life because that's a lie. That's not what relationship with the God of the Bible is like. That's not the relationship you and I were made for. To know God is not primarily at all about our doing. Rather, it is receiving and enjoying what he freely gives, and freely he gives himself. He speaks life over us and breathes life into us. And so relationship with God always starts with his initiative. And it is always sustained by his initiative. So that the Apostle Paul can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His faithful word of promise begins and continues it all. He comes down to us in the beginning, breathing life into us, in kindness, in love, in grace, as giver. And he continues to do that. And he's doing it even now, even at this very moment. The Bible says that when two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, he's right there with them. Even now he's here. Even as we're hearing something of the word of God, even as we've been speaking and singing truth about him, he's here to breathe life, to give of himself. He speaks, you have life. He promises, you trust. He gives, you receive. He breathes, you're awakened. You were made to know the living God and to delight in his love for you. To know that he rejoices over you with singing. To delight in his truth. To swim in the ocean of his love and say, this is for me. To rest in the knowledge that he will never leave you nor forsake you. To taste and to see that the Lord is good. To be nourished by his every word and rest in his unshakable promise. That's why the trees were put in the middle of the garden at the beginning. I do not think they were primarily there as a test for our obedience. Rather, the trees represented placing in the middle God's life-giving word and promise so that God's promise could be seen and lived in, that human beings would behold the promise of God who blesses us with every blessing and freely gives life to us. That's what the trees in this story are all about. And so Westerman says, human beings are created in such a way that their very existence is intended to be their relationship to God. And with that truth in mind, the truth that all life comes from him and is sustained by him, the truth that there is no life apart from him, with that truth in mind, 
How precious are the words of Jesus, the Son of God, who came to us who have fallen and says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. To us who are so prone to religion and so slow to believe the goodness of God, to us so often taken by the lie that life is about me pulling myself up, gaining a self-made acceptance and belovedness, to us the Lord of creation speaks, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The Son of God came down to join us in the dirt again, and another tree of promise has been placed at the center of human reality. The cross on which, in which Jesus died has been placed at the center of human history that we may behold it and see the promise of God, what he freely gives. Jesus died that you might live. Why the cross? So that God might be seen with his arms stretched out wide open for you and for me. And that he would give himself with every last drop of blood in order that that ancient lie that God is withholding something good from us may be finally done away with. Jesus speaks another word from the tree of the cross. And the word is this. It is finished. The work has been done on your behalf and mine. Striving can cease. He is not withholding anything back from us. The Bible says, in Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Colossians 2, 9. Or as 1 Peter 3.18 puts it, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Or as John 3.16 puts it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is giver. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, the risen Lord Jesus joins his fearful disciples in the, in the room in which they were hiding after his crucifixion. And we're told that Jesus shows them his hands and his sides, pointing them to the promise that was made on the tree of his crucifixion. And from verse 21, we read, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Joyous, life-giving, peace-commanding relationship with God has been freely given to us again in Jesus. Just like at the very beginning, he speaks life-giving words to us. Peace be with you. Just like in the very beginning, a tree of promise is set at the center of human reality, the cross of Christ, telling us of an abundantly generous God who loves us and gives himself freely to us. And just like in the beginning, with this promise comes the very breath of life, the Holy Spirit given through the message about Christ. This is what you were made for, relationship with him, to enjoy him, 
to say of him, I am my beloved's and he is mine, to enjoy God. Jesus is given to you and to me so we can stop our striving. We simply behold the promise and trust him. Hear his words and enjoy him so that all of our activity is actually set in motion by what he's already done. His initiative, so much does he love you and me. That's what you and I were made for, relationship with God. I want to pause for a moment. I just want to pray for us. Maybe where you are now, maybe just close your eyes. I don't want you to think for a moment that you are making an, an initiative towards God right now. Because the reason you're here is because he's already initiated it towards you. That he comes to you to speak a word of life over you, to show you the tree of promise that he has established, that you may know he's holding nothing back from you, but gives himself to you freely so that you might be filled with the spirit of life as you hear the words of God, peace be with you. And so in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come now? Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this room? Would you come and touch every heart? Think of it, it says in Galatians chapter 3, that we do not receive the spirit by works of the law, but by hearing with faith about God who freely gives himself. Spirit, come. And may each and every one of us in this room enjoy being who we were made to be, those dearly loved by God, in relationship with him, bearing his image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Relationship with God is the foundational relationship. And yet we're also made for relationship with each other. In a week of news dominated by plans to build walls and pass motions that keep people out, the Bible continues to insist that we were made for community and continues to speak on behalf of the oppressed, the needy, and the refugee, and to speak not of us and them divisions. We were made for each other. Here in Genesis 2.18, God declares, it is not good for man to be alone. And then there's the story of the Lord bringing every animal to Adam. I mean, can you just picture that, that kind of story? So everyone's coming to Adam, and Adam's giving them a name. He's speaking a word over them. He's giving them a name that is affirming them, that's good for them. He's imaging God, doing what God does. So in Adam, in Eden rather, Adam has a fulfilling vocation. He has power, he has responsibility, he has pleasure. But there's still something missing. It's not good for man to be alone. So even there, even in Eden, in order to be able to bear the image of God, relationship is needed with others just like him. So God forms another just like Adam, equal to him in every respect, but distinct from him in significant ways. And it's precisely in such relationships between distinct persons who are totally one in their humanity that 
God's image is displayed. And this is not limited to marriage. Marriage is certainly part of what's in view in Genesis chapter 2. But that's not the sum of it. Because what is certainly not true is that in order to be whole, you need to be married. Sometimes it might feel that way. But that is not true. Elsewhere in the Bible, it is very clear that this is not the case. Indeed, the only human being who is perfectly born the image of God is Jesus, who was never married, a single man, but deeply relational. And similarly, Paul after him. You do not need to be married to be whole, but you do need relationship. And those of us who are married have a responsibility to love those who are not really, really well. Really well. And I don't think we're very good at that. And I think we need to get better at it. Because in conversations I've had with people, I know that it can sometimes feel very lonely. We're made for relationships. And we all need them. Yet in recent times, there's been such an emphasis on autonomy and self-expression and self-determination that the concept of self has trumped every other concept. Me more than we. And this is reflected in the music of recent decades. Now I'm going to show my age a bit here, but songs like I Did It My Way, which I was before my time. Um, Or I Am The One And Only, which is kind of the beginning of my time. Or I am a rock, I am an island, Simon and Garfunkel, before my time. But with this individualism has come confusion and identity crisis and epidemic loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. We need relationship. And in a world so full of identity confusion, the worst thing we can do is push people out and prevent them from coming into a loving community. The world desperately needs community, honest, open, transparent community formed in the word of God, where you can love and be loved. And of course, some of us are introverts and some of us are extroverts. Some love crowds, others love coffees with just one or two people. But we all need relationship. And actually, you can't really know yourself outside of relationship. I heard a friend explain this well the other day. Have you ever had an experience when you see a home video or a video from a phone or something like that of yourself and you're watching it with others and then you say something like, oh, I look awful. And everyone else is thinking, it's just the way you look. It's just, (laughs) no, that's you. That's you. Or um, you hear yourself say, oh, that doesn't sound like me at all. That's not not like my voice. And everyone's like, that's your voice. That's your, see, we don't really know ourselves very well. So often we have a skewed view of who we are. We need others to be ourselves. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. Which Glenn Scrivener paraphrases by saying, I don't know me, I need you to know me. That's true. I don't know me, I need you to to know me. 
We, we need that. I'm so grateful for people in my life who see me more clearly than I see myself. I need that. I need people who will challenge me when I need challenging and encourage me when I need encouraging. So, for example, I've got a friend called Steve, and I think that I'm, I think I'm an attacking midfielder when I play football. I think that I'm a bit of a goal threat. And Steve always reminds me, no, you're a defender, and you're not a threat at all. And I need that. I need that. But equally, when I do my whole over-self-analysis thing, I need people to say what they see in me and to encourage me and to speak gospel truths over me so that I don't just tie myself in knots because sometimes I don't know me. I need you to know me. We're all like that. We're all like that. We, we need one another. We're hardwired for relationship. It's in our DNA. That's why church is not an optional extra in the Christian life. And actually, more fundamentally, we also need relationship with each other if we're really going to know God. You cannot know God by means of your own contemplation or just your own private study or just your own private prayers or your own private spirituality. Jonathan Bell puts it really well. He says, you cannot know the God who is in us only as a me. That's true. You cannot know the God who is in us only as a me. God says, let us make man in our image, male and female. To know him, we need each other. That's why Jesus has given us the church. That's why we do things like small groups. So we can know God together and know we belong. And It's not like you don't belong if you're not in a group. It's that this is a way that you know you belong. You know it. You you get to feel it more, experience it more. We get the delight of discussing the Bible together, praying with each other, confessing our sins and weaknesses to one another, serving each other, encouraging each other, speaking the gospel over each other. There's a phrase that's something like, the, the voice of Christ in a brother is stronger than the voice of Christ within. That's true. You know, we just need sometimes an audible voice to say something true about God to us so that we can say, oh yes, that's true. Singing together, taking communion together. Every Sunday afternoon we have a communion service. It's a way that we receive God fresh. And we do it together. Don't do it on our own. Do it together. In these ways, we know God together. We were made for relationship. And finally, and very briefly, we're made for relationship with God, for relationship with one another, and to have a specific relationship with creation. Now, Glenn Darby is going to be speaking to us about this in two weeks' time. But, but in the beginning, God bestowed upon human beings a particular relationship to the earth and to the creatures that live on it that carries great honor and great responsibility. To image God to creation. To rule over creation in a way that represents God which means lovingly and attentively. As it's put in Genesis 2.15, we are to work it and keep it. Creation was designed to flourish amidst the human activity. So human activity should make it flourish. And so, yes, we can enjoy the sights and the smells and the sensations and the sounds and the tastes of creation and agree it is good and keep that goodness. 
I experienced this the other day. On, on Thursday morning, I was preparing to preach. I took a break, and so I stepped outside into my garden. And Thursday morning was a really beautiful day. The sun was shining, and we have this robin who just sits in one of the trees in our garden. And he was just singing his heart out. And because I was in preach prep mode, I realized the robin is telling me something that's true. Robin is being caught up in the music of the creator and telling me of a God who provides food for the birds of the air who do not have to store up anxiously. And then I realized I'm supposed to tell the robin something about God, to image God to creation. So that the way that we handle things is in such a way that enables flourishment. That's why what we do with our waste matters. How we produce food matters. What we do with our oceans and what we put in them matters. How we handle the rainforest matters. And yet we hear increasingly reports of climate change and see images of devastating effects of human activity on the earth. And you realize we've fallen from our vocation to image God. And yet again, there is an unshakable hope. And once again, it all rests on the promises of God. Not in us, but in him. For he has promised to make all things new. And he catches us up in that, even now. Glenn will help us to see more of that in a few weeks' time. Romans 8 speaks of the whole creation groaning for a time for that renewal to happen. And again, Romans 8 is all about the initiative of God. It's not that we have to fix this. It's that God has promised he will do it. And he catches us up in it. God has spoken in Christ. He has promised he will do it. And the cross and the resurrection guarantees that he will undo all corruption and make all things new. It has begun. It will be completed. And so I want to finish with a word of promise from the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this comes from God. Because he's the one who speaks it into being. His word, powerful to create, but it commands. And so, one day, all things will be made new. And it will be to the glory of God, who always seeks to share his goodness. When you close your eyes, I'm going to just pray for us. Maybe that, maybe that there are people here who just know that one of those three relationships is just, um, it's not quite right. Maybe it's that actually you're, you're, this is the first time you've heard the word about Christ, the first time you've heard of Jesus, and you're thinking, uh, is it for me? We'd love to pray with you afterwards so that you will know, yes, it's for you. Yep, he's given. Maybe there are some of us here who would just say, actually, I just don't feel connected to others, and it's painful. And we'd love to stand with you. Or maybe it's that um, our relationship to creation is just out of whack somehow. That we realize there's stuff that we just need to change. And 
we'd love to pray with you about that if that's something that you'd like to have others stand with you in. Let me pray. Lord, I, I just thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't look to any man or woman to put things to rights. We look to the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I thank you that in the cross and in the resurrection, you have and you are putting us to rights. And you will put all things to rights. You have begun new creation, and it's all in Christ. Which is why we can say confidently, whether we feel it or not, in Christ we're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Precisely because all this is from God, not from us. Lord, I want to pray for each of us in the room. May we enjoy relationship with you greatly. May we enjoy relationship with one another. May that be like a city on a hill. And may we image God well to creation that's around us. In Jesus' name, amen.